Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Maldivian President Mohamed Muizu is paying a state visit to China this week. The U.S. has ordered the temporary grounding of some Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircrafts following a mid-air accident. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East, hoping to prevent the Israel-Hamas conflict from spreading further. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Maldivian President Mohamed Muizu is paying a state visit to China this week. He's scheduled to meet Chinese President Xi Jinping and other leaders, including Premier Li Qiang and top legislator Zhao Lezi. The presidents of the two countries will also attend a signing ceremony of cooperation documents. This is President Muizu's first state visit since he took office last year. China and the Maldives are partners under the Belt and Road Initiative. Now Huang Yue takes a look at some major outcomes of that cooperation framework and at the bilateral relationship. China noted that over the past 10 years, the bilateral relations have developed deeply. The two sides have achieved fruitful results in jointly building the Belt and the Road Initiative and practical cooperation in various fields. The latest data shows that in 2022, bilateral trade reached over 451 million U.S. dollars. China mainly exported building materials, machinery and equipment, and communication equipment to Maldives. Maldives, while Maldives mainly exported aquatic parts to China. And of course, when talking about the Maldives,、uh, the first word that pops up is tourism. From 2010, China was the largest source of、uh, tourists to the Maldives for 10 consecutive years, and nearly 300,000 Chinese tourists、uh, visited the Maldives in 2019, accounting for around 17% of total tourist arrivals that year. And a mutual, a mutual visa exemption policy between the two countries took effect in February 2023, and another. Another important thing that's worth mentioning is the China-Maldives Friendship Bridge, which is known as a flagship project under the Belt and Road Cooperation.、Uh, the bridge was officially opened in late August 2018, with a designated service life of 100 years. And the Maldivian President Moise once said that this bridge has changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, both people living there and visitors, because it gave rise to bridge-related jobs in the country. That was Huang Yue with a report. Now, for more, we're joined by Rongying, senior research fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Thank you, Dr. Rong, for joining us again.、Mm, thank you very much for having me. Now,、uh, Muizu took over as president of Maldives in November 2023. What do we know about him and his foreign policies? Well, President.、Uh, Mohamed Moizu.、Mm. Uh, certainly, I think uh, uh, after he assumed and t- took over as the president of Maldives, uh, uh, giving a lot of publicity、mm. uh, in the region and beyond for his, uh, uh, I think, his for his policy, foreign policy uh, towards uh, India, a traditional and historical sort of.、Uh, Uh, partner for Maldives, and we, and、uh, particularly in terms of with uh, uh, military uh, relations, because uh, he has called upon、mm. uh, with、um, in India to withdraw its small contingent army. That gives a lot of publicity. But but in as a matter of fact, I think、uh, President Moizu、uh, is a very much I think a pragmatic. And certainly, I think uh, experienced uh, uh, statesman, a politician,、uh, in terms of experience.、Mm. He was the、uh, he served, had served as a mayor of the capital of Mali,、mm. so he knows the country and、uh, knows I mean the, very well. And he was also very much, I think, close to the former、uh, president Yamin. Mm. Which I think,、uh, to some extent, uh, very much uh, uh, affected in terms of the perceptions and its policies dealing with,、uh, I mean, foreign policy and so forth. So 
So anyway, I think it was a, a very important visit for the bilateral relationship between China and the Maldives. It is certainly also coincides the 10th anniversary of President Xi's visit uh, to Maldives. And also, I think it was it is not the first actual state guest uh, uh, China uh, received after um, before, for the year 2024. Very mm. important. Well, as you mentioned already, uh, Muizu um, got into a lot of media headlines because of uh, his uh, decision to try to remove a small contingent of some Indian military personnel in his country. And he already met uh, with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi in the UAE on the sidelines of COP28 to discuss the issue. Um, now, Dr. Rong, can you help us understand more of uh, India's traditional role in Modi's foreign policy? And why did Muizu made the decision to remove these Indian military personnel? As I said, that mm. because of the history, because of the culture, and certainly because of the geography, uh, Maldives has very much uh, uh, heavily influenced uh, by India. And uh, that's why I think uh, uh, since 2008, there was a kind of a uh, uh, sort of a strategy mm. or uh, uh, policy named uh, so-called India First. And uh, that gives, of course, uh, a lot of uh, sort of uh, rooms or possibilities uh, for India to influence uh, Maldives domestically and in terms of its uh, relations with outside the world. Mm. But having said that, I think Maldives is a sovereign state, and uh, I think it's certainly we need to respect. I mean, uh, uh, Maldives uh, to exercise to. I mean, for the sake of its own interests, mm-hmm. to exercise independently in deciding uh, how and uh, whom uh, which country should conduct its uh, its relationship. Right. With regard to the specific uh, question of the military uh, sort of relationship. Uh, in terms of that personnel, uh, we, uh, as we know, 70, 70 people, I mean, uh, not a big deal. Mm. I mean, in ter- but if we take into account our Maldives itself, it, don't, it, it does not have a big army. It's mm. talking about 3,000 or something. And the very fact that I think these uh, Indian officers, they are helping or they are stationed, stationed there, enjoy kind of a privilege, I think uh, raised a big question about, I mean, right. the, uh, the question of sovereignty mm. and territory, I mean, independence. Mm. And I no. think it's fair. Mm. And we have to respect that uh, Maldives uh, wanted to have, a, I mean, a fair deal, want mm. to have a different way to deal with uh, India, uh, despite the fact that India is a big power, uh, this, and uh, this, uh, and uh, and that some of the India, I mean, media, mm. uh, have this kind of a ma- mindset that treats uh, Maldives or, or treats South Asia as a whole as a sphere, as a core and backyard sphere mm. of interest, which means that it has it, it is entitled to intervene or influence a sovereign state of Maldives. So it's a it's a quite complicated uh, history, know, but in the sense that I think. Uh, Country big and small, we have to respect. And mm. the Maldives, if they believe that serve the interests, they want to have a, develop a different relationship or a different way to manage the relations, we should respect. Mm. Well, uh, we have two minutes to move on. Uh, but Dr. Rongying, uh, does it say something that Muizu chose China as his destination for his first state visit? And how do the two sides view each other? Well, the relationship between China and Maldives has been solid, has been uh, I mean, uh, uh, based on uh, mutual respect, equality, and win-win cooperation. As, you, as we have just discussed that in the past years, particularly I think about 10 years, Maldives has very much supportive and been part of the BI and, and benefited from that win-win cooperation. And I think President uh, Moizu, and he personally experienced as a mayor of uh, Mali, I mean, these big projects. And I think by choosing China as the first sort of a visit 
the foreign visit, definitely when they indicate that he feels um, he wanted, I mean, the relation with China uh, to be more beneficial benefit. And he, he feels that working with China, being part of the BRI and other initiatives will help uh, Maldives achieve its own development uh, sort of goals and more important to safeguard its peace, I mean, sovereignty and territorial integrity. And China welcomes that and China and, I mean, Maldives relationship, as I said, is based on women cooperation. And I think also demonstrates that countries, I mean, big and small, strong and weak, should be treated each other on an equal basis. That is the key and the secret for a sound relationship. Mm. Uh, briefly, uh, Dr. Rong, what do you think, what issues do you think will top uh, President Moizu's agenda while he's in China? Well, certainly I think since the state visit, it will be very much important for the two leaders to work out, uh, to formulate a plan, a low roadmap of how to further develop and strengthen the relation. That is the most important thing. I think at this moment, the uh, relationship we call a kind of uh, 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 relationship and comprehensive relation for future. But uh, I would uh, assume, I would not surprise if they upgrade the relationship to a uh, a uh, full comprehensive, I mean, comprehensive strategic relation, something like that. Mm-hmm. This is very much important. But the most important thing, equally important thing, is of course the uh, specific uh, agreements uh, uh, and uh, that will be help to implement that vision or that plan. I think we are going to see more agreements be signed in terms of how the two countries to implement that. Uh, mutually beneficial cooperation based on win-win uh, equality and uh, 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 mutual respect. Mm. Thank you. That was Rongying, Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Coming up, U.S. grounds some Boeing 737 MAX airplanes following a mid-air accident. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has ordered the temporary grounding of some Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircrafts operated by U.S. airlines or in U.S. territory. The order was issued following a serious mid-air incident on Friday when a part of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 fuselage blew out on an Alaska Airlines flight out of Portland, Oregon. Now, for more details and analysis, I earlier talked to Zhang Fan, Associate Professor of Astronomy Department of Beijing Normal University. The grounding came after a gaping hole opened mid-air in the side of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 operated by Alaska Airlines. Um, Zhang Fan, first help us understand the model. I mean, how many passengers does it usually hold and what type of flights is it being designed for? This is a uh, single-aisle uh, aircraft. So it's designed not for very long-haul international flights. It's mostly for uh, sort of domestic uh, flights um, in, in, in countries like the size of uh, the U.S., China, or, or within Western Europe. Um, so it can hold, for this particular model, the MAX 9, it can hold up to like 220, 230 people. Um, but not usually, um, you know, the airline, in, in this particular case, the Alaskan airline uh, for this particular route um, only needs to put 180, less than 190 people in the aircraft, um, which is why um, th- this particular airframe had a, a plug door, uh, meaning that uh, if you have the full 220, 230 people, then you need exit routes from the uh, the middle of the plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the uh, for the amount of people they're putting in there, uh, it's not necessary. So they put just put some plugs on the uh, on the on the original door door frame. Um, so that saves weight, and so they don't have to put in uh, extra uh, flight attendants. Mm. 
Well, Zhang Fanlan, how is it different from、uh, Boeing Seven Three Seven Max,、uh, the original Max、uh, that suffered from a major blow worldwide just a few years ago because of two fatal accidents involved with、uh, Indonesia Line Air and also Ethiopia Airlines? Right, so they're basically the same plane, but、mm-hmm. um, the Max Nine. So, so the、uh, the ones that crashed, they were、uh, Max Eight.、Uh, Max Nine is um, it, it's the same aircraft, but a bit longer.、Uh, it's extra sort of auxiliary fuel tank, so it maintains the same flight range. It can fly to the same distance,、mm-hmm. uh, but it can carry more people.、Um, but in this case,、um, it wasn't actually necessary to put. Those more people. So the、um, so so the plug door option is actually only available on this Max Nine because of it can、uh, it can carry these extra people, but not necessary.、Uh, for Max Eight, it, it it can only carry that many people, and the,、um, the the doors are all necessary. So there's no this plug option. So this particular incident of the plug being blown out is it will be、uh, it will be sort of confined to the、uh, Max Nine generation uh, Max Nine. Uh, planes and there are a very small proportion of all the、uh, all the seven three seven Maxes out there. Well, Zhang Fanlan, how do you comment on the actions and policies taken by U.S. FAA so far regarding the Max Nine? Right. So so far,、uh, it appears they are thinking of this as an in- isolated incident of、um, you know problem with the manufacturing process or, or something. But clearly, it hasn't. The 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 aircraft has only been delivered like two months prior to the accident,、um, so、mm-hmm. they can't be fatigue of metal fatigue or, or other problems. They can't be can't be problem arising due to maintenance. So it has to be manufacturing process.、Um, so it appears they're just they, they issued a decree for for everybody to to inspect their Max Nines to to see whether their、uh, their plugs were fitted properly. So they're thinking it's just. One incident where people didn't close the door properly,、um, either because the、um, the supplier, the Spirit,、uh, which is the,、uh, the the Boeing supplier, which makes the fuselage and installs these doors,、um, or Boeing during its manufacturing process,、um, sort of somebody opened the door and didn't open the, the plug and didn't close it properly. So they're not. I don't think they're considering this as a a a widespread、uh, systematic problem.、Mm. Well, let, let's uh reflect on the seven three seven Max uh uh model earlier that were involved in investigations. Um, after twenty months on the ground, uh that model got clearance from FAA to fly again in America. That happened around July twenty twenty. Um, investigators of the two fatal accidents uh earlier. In the Indonesia Line Air and also the Ethiopian Airline, pointed to a series of problems. For example, engineering flaws, mis- mismanagement, and lack of regulatory oversight.、Um, and the attention was focused on one software known as MCES, which was designed to push the plane's nose down、uh, in certain situations. I mean. I'm sure you must be watching the whole situation very closely. In your observation, has Boeing done enough to right its wrongs? Well, obviously not, given、mm-hmm. the、uh, given this particular incident as、mm-hmm. well. So, just just weeks、uh, before this incident, there's also another issue where Boeing told the、um, told the airlines to inspect their their planes because Boeing workers left some bots just randomly flying around in the、uh, in in their tail section or, or, or rudders. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so obviously the whole manufacturing process is is extremely、uh, messed up.、Um, mm-hmm. it, the quality control is is just not sufficient,、um, and they obviously hasn't、um, corrected that problem. So that's mismanagement.、Uh, continuing on,、uh, a lot of people are complaining that the, the Boeing management is now completely just you know business people, not engineers. So、mm-hmm. they, they they just care about cutting costs and and, and not the quality, and also. Um, in terms of、uh, fixing that particular problem,、um, the software problem, that's that's due to what I said earlier. You know, the, the nose tends to to tilt tilt up,、um, but the the software push it down too hard.、Um, they obviously made some minimal changes to the software, but the、uh, the structural design of the aircraft, the the aerodynamics is still that it has tendency to go up,、um, and the torque exerted by that action and the fact that the,、uh, the software tends to push it down. May have contributed. This is pure speculation. Obviously, you need、mm. to have to to read the final report. But you know, if 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 two forces are trying to twist your plane in two different ways, and obviously there's going to be some stress.、Um, and then the the plug being the weak point in the in the fuselage、uh, might have might have been、um, 
have, have suffered from this uh, extra stress. Um, so if that's contributing mm. factor, um, mm. in addition to manufacturing problem, then this, this will be systematic. Um, you need to think very carefully about all the other lines in, in the same series as well. Right. Well, as, as you said, we might have to uh, look into the final report um, to see, you know, what really went wrong. But uh, I mean, this report could take really long. Let's examine the role of FAA uh, again. I mean, what should be its role in U.S. aviation industry? And how do you comment on reports earlier, especially during the investigation of the original uh, 737 MAX uh, that uh, FAA has delegated some of its, its regulatory responsibilities to Boeing itself. Um, so, so that, that obviously sounds really ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. it, the, uh, the, one, the, the people who you're supposed to, to regulate are, are doing the, the actual regulating, so it's self-regulation in a way. Um, but there's practical issues involved uh, in that um, you need real uh, technical expertise to be able to understand the um, the problems uh, that, that you're trying to inspect. Um, and FAA being a government agency pays far less the industry. Um, so so mm -hmm. it's very difficult to attract people with that caliber. Uh, it's the same thing with, uh, with the financial industry as well. You know, all the, uh, all the guys work in the regulatory bodies, their ultimate goal is to, is to migrate into those, uh, th th those companies um, work in their compliance department. Um, and then, <laughs> In the end, if, if that's your goal, you're not going to be, be able to just to regulate your future employers too rigorously. So regardless of whether they, they, they outsource their the regulatory work. Um, so this 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 relationship between the two is just unhealthy and, and, and difficult to reconcile. Uh, what I think really should happen is mm. that, it, you know, the FAA should not go there and, and approve every aircraft that comes out of it. Um, as if it's the quality control, um, it should just sit back and say, okay, you look after your, your quality control, but if something goes wrong, I'm going to punish you really hard. This is exactly the opposite of what they're doing. They mm. they go in there, do some minimal work, certify the aircraft as if it's airworthy, and then crashes happens, and then the FAA does absolutely nothing. And then, as you said, mm. in, as early as 2020, they already recertified those, uh, those crashed aircraft back into service. I mean, that's... Uh, not too lenient, in my opinion. Mm. One more question, Zhang Fan. Uh, regulators in a few countries around the world uh, and, few, and regions such as the European Union, Panama, and Mexico have already granted the 737 MAX 9. I mean, how, how do you think the incident will affect Boeing moving, uh, moving forward? I mean, it's still early, but uh, what do you tell? Well, so... so now this just highlights the problem that Boeing is facing in terms of its, its manufacturing quality control. Um, so the reason why only this this regions and countries um, granted the Max Nine is just because the Max Nine is not the best seller. Only few countries has it. Mm -hmm. um, but everybody is taking notice um, of, of Boeing aircraft, and uh, and and especially the way they they didn't improve after such dramatic crashes that that, that happened mm -hmm. before. So. DC-10 brought down the entire McDonnell Douglas, the entire company. Mm. So if this Max Max uh, 737 Max keeps crashing and, and blowing up doors and, and, and doing all sorts of crazy things, then in the end, eventually Boeing will be facing a serious problem as, as a, a viable company going forward. That was Zhang Fan, Associate Professor of Astronomy Department of Beijing Normal University. Coming up, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits the Middle East, again hoping to prevent the Gaza war from spreading further. And inflation in the Eurozone rose last month after six months of consecutive falls. And lastly, students from University of Virginia in the United States and Tsinghua University in China have come together to celebrate ping-pong diplomacy and 45 years of U.S.-China diplomatic relations. This is World Today. We'll be right back after a short break.
am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East, hoping to prevent the Israel-Hamas conflict from spreading as fighting enters its fourth month. He spoke about humanitarian aid for Gaza during meetings with the Emir of Qatar and the King of Jordan. Meanwhile, the Israeli military has signaled an end to its major combat in northern Gaza, saying it has completed dismantling Hamas's military infrastructure there. Isabel Debris with the Associated Press has more. We have seen U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in the region. He met with Jordanian officials, including, of course, King Abdullah II in Amman, and then he traveled to Qatar, which has been a major mediator so far in the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And as a result, we heard him speaking with the Qatari Prime Minister. Let's hear what he had to say there. We share a commitment to ensure that the conflict does not expand,、uh, and I think we also share a commitment to use the. Influence the relationships, the ties that we have with different parties in the region, to try to avoid escalation and to deter new fronts from opening. Many different topics were on the agenda, and one of the most important was how to pressure Israel to scale down its ground offensive. Of course, that has been wreaking such destruction across the Gaza Strip. How to make it shift into a new phase? The second issue really was about humanitarian aid. We are seeing over 1.5 million people in the southern town of Rafah. Really, levels of starvation are approaching famine conditions. There just is not enough humanitarian aid getting through. And the third issue is really what happens even after the war. It sounds early to discuss, but of course, we are. Hearing worrisome threats from Israeli ministers, according to the United States and other allies, saying that they should the Palestinians should be resettled, that Israeli settlement should continue in the Gaza Strip, should actually be revived there. No matter what happens there, certainly it is important to mention that Blinken, Biden. Definitely need regional buy-in. This war is grinding on, even as the Israeli military has wound down most of its troops in northern Gaza after saying that it has achieved nearly full Israeli military control. We are seeing it pressing its offensive in the central Gaza Strip as well as the southern parts. For more, we're joined by Dr. Guy Burton, adjunct professor at the Department of International Affairs of Vassilis College in Brussels. Thank you, Dr. Burton, for talking to us again. Well, thank you for having me. Now, what do you think the main task for Blinken is during this trip? Well, I think it was some summarized there in the、uh, the recent piece that you had just just had.、Uh, really, I mean, what Blinken's Blinken's trying to do is two things here. One is to manage and contain the conflict.、Uh, you know, to try and find、uh, some way of. Uh, mediating between Israel and 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 Hamas,、uh, as well as you know urging restraints on Israel, hence why the visit to Israel as well.、Uh, but then there's also another dimension which is starting to prepare for the post-war planning. What is going to happen after the fighting ceases once Israel has completed its operations in Gaza? And, and to that end, I think if you look at the countries that that、uh, Blinken's going to, I think there is a lot of、uh, focus on what happens afterwards. Mm. We're talking about these countries,、uh, Dr. Burton.、Um, his destination also includes,、um, apart from Israel, also includes、uh, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, West Bank, and Egypt. I mean, how do you see the choices of destination for him? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty full list. I mean, if you're、mm-hmm. thinking about it, I mean, Egypt and Jordan make sense because they're the frontline states. Egypt, especially so, because it's adjacent to Gaza, and currently the Egyptian、uh, government is under pressure to to take in some of the refugees from Gaza.、Uh, but Jordan, obviously,、uh, you know, there is there is some fighting going on in in, in the West Bank, which、uh, sometimes gets overlooked.、Uh, but of course, Jordan is adjacent to 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 the West Bank, and so obviously there is a tension there. And both of these countries, as well, keep in mind, also have. Relations with Israel.、Uh, then, when you come to Qatar and Turkey, 
Qatar has been playing a key role in terms of uh, enabling Israel and Hamas to to find some uh, find a truce back in November that enabled the release of some of those hostages. You know, Qatar has been a, a key financier uh, or have humanitarian assistance into Gaza for many years, and so it has contacts with Hamas in a way that the Americans don't. Um, Turkey itself has also you know shown some sympathy towards Hamas and has been a host to to some of their officials. Um, so in that respect, that would make sense for for Blinken to visit there. Um, and of course, Turkey. He would also like to be involved in, in reconstruction of Gaza afterwards. As for the UAE and Saudi, now the UAE has uh, relations with Israel as a result of the Abraham Accords a few years ago, mm. um, but both of them are major uh, Gulf players. Uh, may, they Both of them have, are, would probably very likely play an important role as a financier, as a funder of uh, reconstruction and humanitarian assistance in Gaza, both now as as well as when the war ends. And finally, when it comes to Greece, I think that's also sort of a a nod to, uh, you know, sort of the the support that the Greeks have given, you know, both to the U.S. as a regional ally and also uh, in in terms of the the, the Red Sea issue, because, uh, of course, there are Houthi, uh, re- Houthi rebels in in, uh, in Yemen who have been attacking shipping, you know, in sympathy and in solidarity with, with, with Hamas. Mm. Well, quite a list for him and a lot of tasks. Mm. Well, uh, then how do you summarize Israel's recent moves on the war, especially its claim that it's, it has uh, completely uh, dismantled Hamas's military infrastructure? Well, I mean, that's happened in the north of the country. So now they've shifted their focus towards the center and probably working towards the south. I mean, the way that they've approached this is to... Uh, uh, you know, to, to eliminate the top tier, the commander, the commanders of of Hamas in the northern part of the of the territory. Um, but I mean, one of the big challenges is, of course, going to be you know looking beyond the immediate fighting to the long term, because mm. one of the it's all very well uh, you know Israel removing the infrastructure or taking out the key leaders, but this is going to become a defining issue, I think, for for many young Palestinians um, as well as for for young Arabs you know, across across the region. So there is a sense that this issue, this particular war, uh, may well uh, affect how Palestinians, you know, see themselves and see Israel, you know, further down the tracks. So there is a risk, actually, that what Israel's doing is, is, is creating a future problem for itself through radicalization. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, of course, the question of what happens, you know, once Hamas is removed, because Hamas has been dominating the uh, power structures in Gaza for the last decade and a half. Uh, there will be a vacuum of power and something will have to fill it. So I think what Blinken is trying to do is to preempt all of that by getting, you know, the various frontline and other regional states to think, what do we do in Gaza after the fighting ends? Who is going to take over? Um, I think the ideal would probably be for the Palestinians and particularly the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank to do that. But there is a danger, of course, that the Palestinian Authority is relatively weak at the moment. It lacks a lot of legitimacy within its society. And of course, if it's seen to have been put in place after an Israeli uh, war Mm. and occupation, then it's going to be seen as a puppet regime. Well, now uh, we have a minute uh, before we wrap up, uh, Doctor. Mm. But uh, do you think the U.S. has done enough to stop the war? Um, because a lot of pressure from the international community is building up on the United States to pressure it to do more. Well, I mean, personally, I would say no. But mm. then I think if you're looking at it from the Americans' perspective, they probably don't see themselves as the ones to end the war. They see themselves more as a facilitator, facilitator and, and a, a means of restraint. So when it comes to Israel, they're looking, they're still supplying them with arms, but asking them to uh, curb civilian casualties. Uh, when it comes to Gaza and what happens the day after, they're looking to find uh, people who are going to support the governance and particularly the Palestinians on that front. Uh, I mean, one of the big problems, of course, with all of this is that you know, the the Americans have been showing the, the Israelis a lot of carrot, but it's not very clear what kind of stick they have to uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to urge the Israelis to uh, pull back from from the level of violence that they've been operating. Mm. Well, we'll see what uh, really comes out of uh, Blinken's trip this time. But thank you. That was Dr. Guy Burton, adjunct professor at the Department of International Affairs, Vasilis College in Brussels. This is World Today. We'll be right back. 
Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Now, welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Inflation in the eurozone rose last month after six months of consecutive falls. The cost of living in the 20 countries that use the euro currency went up 2.9 percent in December. That follows a two-year low of 2.4 percent in November. The increase is still less than analysts had predicted, but it raised questions over whether interest rate cuts may now be on hold. So, is the eurozone inflation rise just a blip or of more of a stubborn nature? For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Yan Liang, professor of economics, Willamette University. So, Yan, first,、uh, what do you think is behind this latest jump in the inflation after six months of consecutive falls? Right. So, if you look at eurozone's inflation, it has jumped up from 2.4 percent in、uh, November last year to 2.9 percent in December. And so, the increase in the cost of food, alcohol, tobacco, as well as services,、um, combined with a much less、uh, significant drop in the energy price year on year,、um, helped to push up the overall inflation rate. So again, this is the same story about energy price volatility.、Um, that, for example, it has gone up in Germany、uh, this year. I mean, 2023 compared to 2022,、um, and the government in Germany.、Uh, Was also planning to unwind、um, the energy subsidies, so it's foreseeable that energy costs are going to continue to rise, and that could definitely dampen the expectation of falling inflation. And if you look at the core inflation overall in eurozone, that has fallen、uh, from 3.6 percent in November to 3.4 percent in December. So again, this is the same idea that if we don't look at energy cost or food price. Then inflation is much more contained.、Um, but once we consider energy price and food price, then unfortunately, I think eurozone still has way to go、um, to keep the inflation under control. And the services inflation was flat. So how do you explain that? And what does this say about the eurozone economy? So I think the service sector inflation remains flat. It's largely due to two reasons.、Uh, one is that it reflects that the economy is still lack of. Very strong and solid recovery,、um, so that means the economy is still in some slack, and that puts the downward pressure, you know, on the cost or on wages, and so that helps to keep inflation low. And second is that the service sector is largely domestic, and it shields itself from the rising cost of energy, for example, that is largely, you know, imported from outside of the eurozone economy. So both reasons、uh, tell us that again, inflation in eurozone is still largely an externally driven phenomenon due to energy、uh, cost and energy,、uh, you know, volatility. And people in the region are now looking at these inflation figures and worrying about their mortgage rates and the interest rates. So when do you see the European Central Bank or the ECB were beginning to cut the interest rates, and what factors are in their considerations? Right, so definitely the high interest rate is taking a toll on consumer demand and also on the economic activities. But unfortunately,、um, you know, giving this latest increase in inflation, it dampens the expectation that the ECB is going to relax their tightened monetary stance anytime soon. So this is very different than the United States.、Um, the Fed has been signaling that they are going to start cutting rates this year.、Uh, many of the Uh, market observers、uh, believe that you know the, the Fed will start to cut rates as early as the mid、um, you know in twenty、uh, mid year in twenty twenty four, but I think in uh, ECB uh, Lagarde seem to suggest that there's still way to go,、um, given the inflationary pressure. Um, that they're probably not going to look at, you know, cutting rates anytime soon. So this、mm. is very unfortunate because this is going to take a toll on the economy.、Um, for example, the OECD now expect that the eurozone economy,、uh, the German economy, for example, is going to grow only by 0.6 percent, 
where some other experts have projected a contraction um, by, you know, 0.5 percent um, because of this double whammies of, you know, um, high, high interest rates um, and also the lack of fiscal spending. And so that is going to really, uh, you know, worsen the economic situations. Mm. And there are some new inflationary concerns appearing, including the disruption to the shipping in the Red Sea and the withdrawal of the uh, uh, German government subsidies. So how should we understand this inflationary trend? Is it temporary or is it, will it be stubborn? Right. That's a great question. So I think the Red Sea incident simply suggests that, you know, with all the global supply chain is still in a very fragile um, state. And let's not forget, you know, the inten- intensifying tensions in the oil p- producing in the Middle East also added pressure on the oil price. When you look at the Brent crude oil, um, they have went, uh, it has gone up from $70 a barrel in December to now in January, we're looking at $78 per barrel and it's expected to continue to rise. And on top of that, as you mentioned, you know, with the Red Sea incident that could disrupt some supply chain and it will also increase the shipping cost. So that would add to that inflationary pressure. And finally, um, as you mentioned, um, you know, the Germany government and some other governments in the Eurozone, um, they are also looking at rewinding some of the government subsidies in energies. And so that would definitely also raise the energy cost. So all of this just mean that, you know, again, um, Eurozone economy is not out of the woods yet when it comes to containing inflation. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Germany. So inflation there accelerated to its fastest rate for three months in December. So what do you think is at the core of Germany's economic troubles? Right. So I think the biggest reason, as we know, is the energy dependency um, to, you know, the global uh, market to Russia, uh, for example. So um, because of they're so dependent on the external uh, sources of energy, um, they have abandoned, you know, their nuclear power. And so, you know, with this kind of dependency, they basically expose themselves to the volatility of the global you know, energy markets. And so that it's not going to be helpful. Um, for the inflation and also for the general economy, because when the energy cost rises, then a lot of the energy intensive industries like chemicals, for example, which um, is a really uh, top of the industries for, for Germany. So these kinds of industries would really suffer. And we're looking at, you know, deindustrialization uh, in some sense, um, because a lot of these energy intensive companies simply have to scale back or have to invest abroad. Um, and I think Germany still has a lot more problems than just the energy. Um, they're also having some structural issues. Um, and also, I think, a very ultra-physical uh, conservative government. So all of this could really take the toll of the German economy. Mm. And what do you think is the outlook for the Eurozone economy this year? What's the challenges and opportunities? And what's the uh, certainties and uncertainties? Right. So I think, you know, for the Eurozone economy, because Germany is such a leading economy um, now with this inflation, you know, uh, is lifting up again. And France also, their inflation has gone up from, you know, 3.9 percent in, in November to now 4.1 percent in December 2023. So the two of the leading economies in Eurozone are, you know, facing with higher inflationary pressure. Um, and then, like I mentioned, that the German government has been ultra conservative. You know, their deficit to GDP ratio uh, is 2.5 percent compared to the eurozone's average of 3.6 percent. Um, and their deficit is expected to continue to decline uh, as a portion of GDP to 1.6 percent. And the debt is also much lower. They, their debt to GDP ratio is 66 percent and eurozone is 90 percent. So what that means is that, you know, without the active government spending um, to, you know, invest in the education, fiscal and digital infrastructure. Without all of these, plus the inflationary pressure, plus the tightening monetary stance, um, I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, the German economy or France, French economy and the entire Eurozone economy is not looking very rosy um, at this point. And it seems that Europe is just not a very dynamic area now. So what do you think is the long-term structural problem? And what about its uh, technological advancements and innovation capability? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, unfortunately, um, for many of the Eurozone economies, especially Germany, you know, they have been facing with this problem of the lack of investment in their critical physical and digital economies. 
Um, so take Germany as example again, you know, 40% of the point of sales payments are still in cash. And that compared to China, you know, digital payments has been so popular and has been so widespread. Um, and again, you look at Germany, you know, um, their um, the, the companies and their households outside of the major urban areas have very limited access to top quality internet connections. Um, they have facing the labor shortages also, um, you know, there is a, has been a survey last year and almost 50% uh, of the companies that they surveyed around 200,000 companies said that they have difficulties filling up their vac uh, vacancies, their job vacancies. Um, and then we also see that their labor productivity has not been growing. Um, their labor productivity actually has been growing in a negative rate, um, you know, since 1995. So all these just mean that, you know, uh, with the aging population, the lack of productivity growth, the lack of investment in infrastructure, the economy are going to continue to struggle. So what they really need to do is to really abandon the kind of ultra conservative fiscal stance and also monetary tightening stance um, to really invest in their renewable energies, in their digital infrastructure, in education, and also to welcome, you know, more immigrant skilled workers. So those have to be done um, in order for this economy to be revitalized. That was Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University. This is World Today. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. In 1971, history was made across a ping-pong table when the Chinese government invited the U.S. table tennis team to visit China, despite the lack of diplomatic relations between the two countries at the time. Now, 53 years later, students from University of Virginia and China's Tsinghua University have recreated this event. As part of the game change bridging the U.S.-China divide through sports course, UVA students embarked on a nine-day trip to China, marking the 45th, an 45th anniversary of China-U.S. diplomatic relations. They retraced the footsteps of the original visit, including exhibition matches and visits to iconic landmarks such as the Great Wall and Beijing's Central Axis. My colleague Zhou Weiran spoke to Ambassador Stephen Moore, Vice Provost for Global Affairs at University of Virginia and organizer of the course. I heard that you've been to China many times. And what's the biggest impressions of you about the Chinese young students? What impresses me is their commitment to excellence. This is a country, I can tell, where people work very hard. Uh, they have good ambition uh, to excel. And I can see that in how the Chinese students play ping pong uh, with, our, with our students. So it's, uh, the, the young people here are a very good representative of China, just as I hope our young people are, are good representatives of the United States. I heard that you designed the course, The Game Change. Yeah. How did you come up with this idea, and, and why sports? Mm -hmm. So I used to be an American diplomat, and we, uh, over the past several years, um, I've been concerned that there aren't very many American students coming to China. And I think the relationship between the United States and China is the most important and most consequential diplomatic relationship in the world. And if our young people, if our students aren't coming uh, to China to learn about China, uh, I think that's a very bad thing. Our people need to understand each other, and I want to make sure that at the University of Virginia we do our part. So uh, a few months ago, uh, when I was last in, in China, I was talking to some of my Chinese counterparts and said, well, you know, in a time of trouble in the past, when the United States and China did not talk very well, 
The one thing that changed that was ping pong diplomacy. When the American team came to China in 1971, let's try that again. And they were very enthusiastic. So we worked together with the People's Association, with friendship uh, uh, with foreign countries, and they've developed a wonderful program uh, for us. Uh, we worked very closely with the American embassy here, uh, who has been very supportive as well. And so we pulled together a comprehensive course, which of course features ping pong that we'll see today. That's the heart of it, but it's not the only thing. Uh, we want to have instruction and, and lectures and class to learn about the history of China, the culture of China, uh, to understand what's the current state of U.S.-Chinese relations, and what are uh, the challenges in developing a good relationship between the United States and China. So I think uh, the students uh, have been uh, enjoying it very much, and uh, I think they're learning a lot. And we're so grateful for the hospitality that our Chinese hosts have offered us. And we will welcome all of these students coming to China. You know that recently, uh, President Xi in San Francisco, he announced the plan that China is ready to invite 50,000 young Americans to come into China to study to, for exchanges. Uh, and you're the vice provost of University of Virginia. Uh, does your school also have the same plan to take on more exchanges to Chinese? Yeah, so um, as uh, this is the first time in four years that uh, University of Virginia students have been to China. So um, I want to do this program first. It's just for two weeks and uh, to see how it goes. So far, I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to increase the number of our students coming here. But this is a first step. And if this succeeds, and I think it will, uh, we look to develop more programs like this going forward for longer term, not just about ping pong, but to also study other things, to study Chinese language, study Chinese history, study Chinese culture. And so, yes, I very much hope to bring more students here. It's important. I know that you are always trying to be the bridge between China and the U.S. And what are the hardest part you encountered when you're trying to help Americans understand China? Well, um, there are different political systems in China and the United States, different economic systems, different social systems. So the, the, the biggest challenge is trying to understand how China sees the world, just as I hope we can help uh, explain to our Chinese friends how Americans see the world. And I think if we have conversations like that, very soon people will learn that we actually have a lot of things in common. Uh, both China and the United States are big, important countries. Our economies are the two most powerful economies in the world. And how we conduct our relations with each other has a huge impact on the, on the rest of the world. So our challenge is to learn what we have in common, what our interests are in common, and then work together for the benefit of the whole world. We are so glad to see more events like this are opening the channel for communication between the two countries. And last, what do you want to say or any insights you want to share with the youth from the U.S. and China? Um, just that... Uh, we are, our countries are too important. Uh, we really have to work very hard to understand each other and reduce tensions for the benefit of all mankind. That was Ambassador Stephen Mu, Vice Provost for Global Affairs at University of Virginia and organizer of the course. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.